If you would, grab a Bible and turn it to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Um, as you're doing that, we did have a fantastic time in the 9 a.m. service. I especially want to thank you guys for coming at the 11 a.m. service. This doesn't matter as much if you're joining us through the live stream, but for those of you who are here, our 9 a.m. has just gotten incredibly packed over the last few weeks, and so um, it is a deal where um, we just cannot fit anyone at 9 a.m. right now, and so thank you for sacrificing and being at 11 a.m. Uh, also letting you know that there in all likelihood will not be an 11 a.m. service next week. It will instead be a 10.30 a.m. service. Going back to our normal service times of 9 a.m. and 10.30. Just letting you know that right now so that you can plan ahead. Um, all right, Daniel, chapter 5. We are in the midst of a series in the book of Daniel. And we call this a series, uh, Thriving When Adversity is the Norm. Uh, assuming that we're living in something of a period of time where adversity uh, is very present, very real to us in many ways. In fact, um, as I've been going through Daniel, chapter 5 that we're in today, this might be the most relevant of the Daniel stories for our world today uh, because we do live in a day and time where the proverbial handwriting is on the wall in many ways. Uh, seems pretty real and pretty obvious. Um, and if you don't know much about Daniel 5, and some of you may not know anything about it, if you don't know much about it, it is a story about God's hand, his fingers actually showing up and writing something on a wall. Um, and so there's something of that cliche of where we get that from in this text. Um, I would make the case that if you, like me, feel that significant um, adversity as the norm um, if you feel that that is kind of a, a season we're living in, like that's something you just kind of got to get used to, uh, that we understand that what we're feeling um, isn't just um, an abrasive rub of the time we live in, the culture we live in, um, all the controversies that we seem to be in the midst of, um, but it's also a part of God's hand of providence. It's, it's handwriting on the wall. It really is. Um, so much is messy right now, and that means something. Uh, it's not just that things are messy. Some people think things are messy, and we've said that. We've confessed that, and that's just true. But it's not just true. It means something. It says something. And like Belshazzar, and if you don't know who Belshazzar is, he's really the main, the main person that's uh, spoken of in Daniel chapter 5, uh, the king Belshazzar. Uh, for uh, Babylon, um, as he highlights, his story highlights in today's text, you and I will also, like Belshazzar, need to respond in some way. And whether we do it intentionally or not, we're going to respond in some way to the meaning of the adversity that we're experiencing right now. And our responses actually say a lot about whether we're going to thrive in adversity or whether we're going to just get chewed up. And so with that said, let's read Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. Starting there, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, real quickly, um, King Belshazzar is something of a controversial figure um, in biblical history, mainly because most of our time that we've 
been reading through the scriptures and had our scriptures to read in history, Belshazzar was a mysterious character. He didn't really show up in history anywhere. Um, And so many doubted the biblical narrative here that the Bible just once again got it wrong. It's another reason why we should kind of take the Bible um, as just kind of a quaint, nice religious set of stories, but it's not really real. Well, archaeology always catches up and always tells the truth, and archaeology has told us there was a Belshazzar. But here's the kicker. He wasn't a king. He was the son of the final king of the Babylonian Empire. The final king of the Babylonian Empire was Nabonidus, and that is true. That is from history, and any um, truth-telling Um, Christian would confess that that is true, but here's the thing. There's more to his story than you realize. Within regular history, I can't remember whether it was Herodotus or um, another historian, but um, King Nabonidus actually had to leave the Babylonian capital where all this court intrigue is going on. Um, He had to leave because of his religious practice. You see, most religious practice of a Babylonian king would come through the superiority within the greater polytheism of many deities. Uh, Marduk would always come out on top. Marduk was the king's uh, uh, object of worship in terms of pecking order. Um, however, Nabonidus did not really cooperate with any of that. He actually preferred a deity named Sin, and that caused a lot of controversy within the Babylonian Empire, especially amongst the priestly cl- class, and as a result, um, eventually it became too hot to handle, and history tells us that he eventually, um, for reasons of shoring up some trade routes, Uh, in the empire. He left the capital and basically set up shop and made his home in another major city of the empire where he could protect some trade routes from uh, the growing and threatening Medes and Persians and other empires that would like to see Babylon fall. This is all true. This is all from history. He did that. When a king would do that, usually He would set up a co-regency with someone. In this case, he set it up with his son. So for all intents and purposes, even though Nabonidus was at that time the practicing king of Babylon, as far as the capital was considered, the king was Belshazzar. He was the king. He was the one on site and actually leading the kingdom on site. And so that's really where we get Belshazzar. If anyone historically casts doubt on why he's here and who he is, that's really the story of where he is uh, in history. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is what we've been reading about all up until chapter five, but he's about 20 years prior to this. We skipped 20 years from chapter four to chapter five, uh, all the way from the, the, the greatest of Babylonian kings all the way to the final Uh, kings of Babylon. And so um, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and it's not literally his father, but that's a way they would refer to oftentimes a successor's um, original great king. Uh, He was basically his son in that sense of being his successor. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken these Uh, these vessels of gold and silver out of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, He brought them uh, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, 
um, he sacked Judah and took out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, uh, these artifacts that were a part of the temple worship. They were a part of a holy practice. Now, what did he do with them? He basically took them as the conquering king, and he set them aside, did nothing with them. Okay, so, so he did nothing with them. He understood they were holy articles. He had done his business. He had done enough. He wasn't going to do anything more. He wasn't going to kind of stick his finger in the people of Judah's eyes, uh, so to speak. But what he did do um, is he left them for his successors. And this successor thought, you know what? We are really big deals. And so they went out and they got these vessels and they decided we're going to drink out of these. Okay, this is, this is not going to go well for them, by the way. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way quite literally it's talking not about his limbs but his loins uh, were knotted in other words some translations say he soiled himself he is totally out of his mind at this providential hand of God literally showing up on the scene he knows he's in the presence of something really really nuts in terms of God showing up. And so all these things happen. His knees knock together. And so the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. What's the meaning of third ruler? Well, we've already actually talked about that. This is one of the illusions as to how they were set up in terms of the succession of the throne. His father, Nabonidus, was first in the throne, and he was second in the throne, okay? And so there was only one spot after that, and that was third. And so third was going to be what he offers next. All right. Uh, third ruler in the kingdom, verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing, or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his hand, and his lords were perplexed. And so he was already he was already stressed out about this. Then his 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 wise guys couldn't handle it, and so he goes right back into where he was a moment ago. He is perplexed. He is um, freaked out. His color has changed. The queen then shows up. And who the queen is, in all likelihood, historically, this is probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen mother, uh, who still held a stately um, uh, position in the royal palace. Uh, it probably was not his mother in all technical sense, although he would have considered her a mother of his. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirits of the holy gods, uh, or in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your found, that were found in him, in King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, 
uh, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. And because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Okay, so now let, king, let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Um, she's speaking with great authority because she watched these things transpire during her husband's uh, rule. So, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Now, he's just been told that Daniel was a big deal with Nebuchadnezzar. But now he says, You're that Daniel. Not that big deal. You're that exile from Judah. <laughs> so, so, so Daniel, who just kind of rose to the top of the empire, now Daniel has gone to the back of the line, effectively, and King Belshazzar is letting him know that. You're at the back of the line. Aren't you the one that Nebuchadnezzar brought as an exile from Judah? This is a, it's hard to read between the lines sometimes here, but for the court intrigue stories like this, we're meant to notice that and meant to go, oh, that was a slap in the face. You're one of those exiles from Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you. In other words, you were dragged here. You were brought into slavery. He conquered you and brought you here. Uh, anyway, there's, just, just, oh, there's a lot dripping off the, the words here. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light of the understanding and the light of excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, they have all been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, well, you shall be clothed with purple and have a great chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Makes the same offer he made his wise men. Then Daniel answered and said, before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read for you the writing made to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, he gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So he's making sure he understands who's the source of anyone's greatness. This guy that brought me into exile, this guy who took me and made me in exile, he has someone ahead of him. He has someone above him, a great God, and he gave him his greatness and glory and majesty. And so, again, they're kind of exchanging words in between words in kind. And so he goes on and says, because of the greatness that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. This is what we read about last week in Daniel 4. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his his mind was made to be like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart 
Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then, from his presence, from the Lord's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed for you. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Pisan. Parsin. And if you don't have any kind of a note section of your Bible, what it basically means, it's, there's a verbal form. It means numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, weighed, and divided. And he says in verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Says it twice to emphasize that, in fact. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him and he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. These last two verses, these last two sentences are true history, verified history. Literally, the Persians and Medes under the general Darius, Cyrus's general, took over the city, the capital of Babylon in the midst of what history calls a giant party, basically in terms of their day, an orgy. The whole city was in it. In fact, that was a part of the whole strategy of the Medes and Persians. They were like, they're partying. Let's go. Let's get in there. There's more to it than this, that, and I'll get to that in just a moment. And so the handwriting was on the wall, right? I mean, literally. <laughs> Not just proverbially, but literally. In fact, it always has been, though, in a proverbial sense, since humanity's rebellion against his creator in the days of Genesis 3. Uh, this text, in fact, goes through at least three important things that come out of the Genesis chapter 3 text in terms of writing on the wall, things that have been true, things that have simply been facts since humanity chose to rebel against his creator that were highlighted through today's text and the experience of Belshazzar. The first is this. The writing is on the wall about this world, about its nature, what is real, what is true, about it what's true about it all this world coming out of genesis 3 the lord made no attempt to hide the fact that man's rebellion led to a brokenness of the world that it had fallen all of it had fallen subsequent scripture passages tell us and ex explicate it quite quite handily that the world had fallen into a mess and that its end its conclusion was assured. 
And Babylon of old was merely just a smaller picture of a much bigger reality about this world and history's trajectory. Every empire that's all ever fallen, every setup, every grand scheme of man that has ever come to a conclusion is but a reminder that nothing lasts in this world, that everything concludes, that everything ends, and that there is a final end to all things that God has already programmed out. And so this is the trajectory of history, and in this text we have quite literally the hand and fingers of God's providence showing up with a message about what is true, what is real about this world and the world that Belshazzar lives in. And he's going to learn about what's true about the world by what is true about his kingdom that he thought was a kingdom he could build and sustain for all of time. When God's providence shows up, friends, and tells us what is real about the world, what is real about our world, our circumstances, it's both grace and an opportunity. Grace and an opportunity. Perhaps you're in circumstances right now where your world and what you consider to be things you could guarantee, things that you could feel under your feet have been slipping, have been going away. This is a grace. This is an opportunity to remind you how the world actually is set up, what it really is, and where it's actually on its way towards. Have you heard the phrase, Nero fiddled while Rome burned? It's, it's, a, it's, it's literally what happened from what we understand of the story. While Rome was in a crisis and the city was burning, he was far off at a villa on his fiddle playing music. And so the, the phrase or the, the cliche has come to be representative of the idea behind a leader doing frivolous things while in a moment of crisis he should be leading and doing the right things. It's both a common and a classic human response to the nature and state of the world and its fallenness and in its brokenness. Um, it's easy to mock that and to think it's silly that he fiddled while Rome burned, but it's a cliche not because it's true of Nero, it's a cliche because it's true of, of me and of you and of us. Um, we oftentimes, when faced with the reality of the world, the reality of our circumstances, when the Lord gives us the grace and the opportunity of telling us how things really are in this world, letting us experience it, i.e. adversity is the norm, that we oftentimes don't handle it real well and we effectively play fiddle while the world's burning around us. We basically pretend like what's true is not true what exists does not exist. It's burying one's head in the sand. Another way of saying it. It's living in denial. It's choosing to engage in escapism over facing the reality in the world for what it really is. Let me pause for just a moment and just remind you of something. One of the things that I've been talking about lately, especially since um, several months back, um, and all the, just the craziness we live in, uh, right now. Um, I, I've said oftentimes in sermons, sometimes in a ranting fashion, and I, I just, I'm willing to say that and confess that. I don't desire to rant, but sometimes it feels like that, um, that we should be turning off the news far more often than we do, that we should be shutting down if we're engaged in it, social media far more than we do. Um, 
I want to be real clear about this. Um, reason I say that is because we overload on those things most of the time. And um, it's not because I think that we should bury our head in the sand and not be wor uh, worried about or interested in what's going on in the world. Here's the neat thing. We live in a world that has podcasts that in two minutes you can basically get caught up on what's going on in the world, right? Like, you don't need to watch hours of news to be caught up on what's going on in the world. Hours of news goes from being informed and being aware and choosing not to bury your sand. It goes from there to now you're being discipled by your news station. Now you're being discipled by your social media feed. Okay? That's what I'm getting at. Don't be discipled by those things. Intentionally be discipled by the words of God in Scripture and discipled by your time with Him in prayer. But definitely don't bury your head in the sand and not realize what's going on in the world. Find ways to catch up on what's going on in the world. Just don't get discipled by the many choices and ways in which they want to keep your eyeballs on their product. Okay? Okay, press play again. With that said, we see here... Um, we see here that uh, definitely um, Belshazzar is showing a sense of confidence about his situation, a sense of false bravado in the face of God's judgment that will be visiting him that night. Because um, God's hand was on history in this moment, um, and it's, his hand is on history in all things, even the moment we're living in right now. You see, the world isn't just a fallen and broken world. It is that. But it's not enough to say the world is just fallen and broken. It's not just that. Because oftentimes when we say that, oftentimes the, the follow-up assumption that many people make is that, that, that with that, we're just kind of left to our own devices. We're left in this mess. And God is far off and he's kind of washed his hand of it all. But God is actually quite active. And even to the point that we... We talk of him as the hand of providence within the faith of Christianity, orchestrating all he does for good and for his pleasure and for his glory as a means towards his much larger program, his much larger plans for creation's ultimate and final redemption at the end of days. Now, with all that said, the fact that Belshazzar had the false bravado and confidence of his position so much confidence, get this, not only does he throw a party with a thousand of his lords, but he throws a party with a thousand of his lords, and then he drinks in front of them. For those of you who don't know a little bit about the intricacies of the kingship of Babylonia, you don't do that. You don't drink in front of your subjects because you keep your mind about you in front of your subjects. You're the one. Everyone else can get plastered, but you keep your mind about you and stay dignified. What he is saying is, I am so confident of the position we're in. I'm so confident and, and ready for whatever is ahead that I will even drink in front of you. It's kind of like the double dog dare, right? He's saying, watch this. That's how confident I am. And this is how ludicrous all of this is. You see, the history behind the history of here is that two days earlier, his father, Nabonidus, was routed, absolutely routed, where he had, he had holed up for several years and been protecting a trade route. Well, that trade route fell, and it fell to the Medes and Persians. And so Nabonidus, from what they knew, just took off for the hills. He did not take off for the capital of Babylonia. He took off for the hills. He left. We don't know much about where he ended up, but the point is he was routed. He was defeated. 
and two days is plenty of time for the word to have gotten back to him. In other words, we're reading a text where Belshazzar understands that the opposing army has already destroyed his father's army. And not only that, visually is outside of his walls. This is interesting because you don't really see that in the text. They don't give you that in the text. But historically speaking, we know this was true because they were outside of the walls because that night they came inside of the walls and took over the city. How they did it is pretty interesting. They noticed that they're having a big party. They're going, huh, that's weird. We're on the outside of their walls. They're having a party. Okay, if that's the way it is. And so what they did, the Euphrates, which flowed underneath the city, they took the Euphrates and the army of the Medes and the Persians became an army corps of engineers, and they went ahead and they diverted just enough of the Euphrates off to a, a marsh that was outside of the city walls that they were able to lower the Euphrates to the point where they could wade under the walls through the waterway. And that's how the army of the Persians came in and completely took out the Babylonian Empire in one fell swoop. The point being, though, this false bravado was just that. It was based upon nothing. Hot air. His father's army is crushed. The army that looks to crush him is outside of his window. And he's like, I'm going to drink in front of you. We're going to party. It's the ultimate denial. Like the Babylon of old, the Lord has already spoken regarding this current order. And the world's trajectory and conclusion has a pre-designed end, friends. And no amount of walls, no gate, no barrier can stop it. It's coming. And here's the thing. And I, wanna, I want you to hear me really clearly on this. There's a lot of good in the world that we can do. There's a lot of change that we can help in. I just want you to know that. I would never want to discourage you from being a change agent in the world, in the culture we live in. Things that are in our world and the season we live in that we want to um, brush up against and take the gospel to, we should be doing that. But having said that, we are limited. We have limits. Like, there's a point at which God takes good pleasure in his judgment having effect on our culture. And actually, bad things happening in our culture, it fits his purposes and what he wants to do to bring people to repentance. That's hard to say, that's hard to accept, but we are limited. In other words, there are no gates, barriers. And by the way, you, you, you know about the wall of Babylon. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was incredibly thick. Nothing, not even one of the greatest of the ancient world could be a barrier. To what the Lord would do in this instance. His judgment would have its way. Interestingly enough, um, there's something of a silver lining in um, Belshazzar's play acting that everything's okay, everything's going to be okay. Um, our play acting and lying to ourselves about how things really are, um, they do tell us or they do remind us that we, at least, or at least confirm for us, I should say it that way, that we know things shouldn't be the way they are, okay? So Belshazzar was like going, 
this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And so he play acts. He pretends. He buries his head in the sand. At least that is a confirmation that he understands this hasn't how things should be. Things shouldn't end like this. I mean, his empire should end, but he understands that there's something very tragic about endings, um, no matter even for an evil emperor, that is the case. That we want something better than this. We long for the redemption of all things, for things the last. But friends, we can either bury our head in the sand and pretend otherwise, pretend our kingdom here is secure, somehow achievable, or we can receive citizenship in a better world. A citizenship in the gospel's kingdom. See, that's part of the gospel message. The gospel message isn't about us being able to convince our culture, society, or people around us that somehow we can exact the kind of change that can bring all your dreams true and get rid of all evils. We can't. Praise God for whatever evils we can get rid of. Praise God for whatever good we can, we can bring. But to make the promise that we can get rid of it all and we can do it all, we're liars. <laughs> we can't do it. We can't do it. We live in a fallen world. And that is a message here. The gospel is not the message of an A-plus, best money can buy version of a fallen world. The gospel message is about a new and better world, a kingdom that renews all that it is. And so you and I need to make sure that what we invite people in is not a better A-plus version of a fallen world. We're inviting them into something that's far better than the best we can construct, the best we can legislate, the best that we can somehow socially engineer in this world. We're inviting them to something that is the best of all of their hopes and dreams that will not be established in this place. Second writing on the wall is that the, the condition of judgment. Second writing on the wall is about judgment and it's looming towards us. In other words, that justice will have its day. Um, King Belshazzar, um, he knows what's going on. Uh, he's, not really, he's not really a dull guy to God showing up with his hand uh, because his physical body reacted the way it should react to the hand of God showing up. Um, he knew this was a bad scene. Um, he knew the hand of God was judgment. Judgment is at hand in some way. And that's why he called all his Medes or all his uh, Chaldeans and all his uh, riddle solvers into his, into his court and says, I need to know what this means. Interpret it for me. And it's also why he said, I have you for this. You should be able to interpret it. Tell me what it is, and then I can do something about it. Remember, that's, that's the mentality going on here. You tell me, and that's not going to cause me to worry. Me knowing and having the information actually gives me control, control that I can actually do something about this, whatever it is. And so he promises something. He promises robes. He promises a golden chain. He promises third in the kingdom status. All these things to them. Obviously, they didn't achieve what he wanted them to achieve, and so he goes pale again because he knows he doesn't have the information that he needs. And so he's reminded of Daniel from the queen mother, brings Daniel in, offers him all the same things. And if you don't know what he's offering him, 
He's offering him honor. That's the meaning of the purple robe. He's honoring him wealth. That's the meaning of the golden chain. And then third in the ruler, he's offering him status. And what's even far more important than this is that he offers it exactly what he offers his court. He offers to him who he just called an exile of Judah who is dragged away from his home by my father Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, here's the thing. The Lord showed up. Judgment is at hand. But here's the deal I'll make for you. If you tell me what this means, I will be in the position to render judgment. That's what a proclamation was by the king. It was a judgment rendering. And so this is him saying, I know the hand of judgment is shown, but if you can tell me what it means, guess what? I can proclaim judgment. I'll proclaim judgment. You will no longer be exile of Judah, dragged here, kicking and screaming from your home as a slave. I will give you honor, I will give you wealth, and I will give you status. In other words, I will proclaim you no longer slave. You're a big deal now. You matter now. You are at the top of the heap now. You're one of us. Of course, Daniel, just like anyone in the city who was not deluded by the king, could see out the city gates and go, yeah, what about them? (laughs) And so he goes, yeah, I don't want any of that. Because wealth that you have to offer won't mean anything here in a few moments. (laughs) Status that you have to offer won't mean anything. And neither will any kind of honor. He says, I don't need any of that. But yet he, at the end of the story, did you ever wonder why he accepted it? Why he accepted it? Like it feels kind of hypocritical. Like you already said you wouldn't take that, but you just took it. Now remember, these stories, these court stories are meant to speak some things and to be kind of, drawing. They're meant to intrigue us in and to wonder why something happened the way it happened. And as we see the end, we're meant to juxtapose or to compare and contrast the fact that he took it knowing that he would be representative of a truth that needed to be proclaimed to King Belshazzar and all that could see. For he remained wearing his robe with his golden chain and with his status, forever long it would last, while the Chaldean was killed that night. In other words, whatever judgment that Belshazzar thought he could render, the Lord showed that he is judge, and he brings justice to bear on all and everything. And so Belshazzar was judged, but yet here, is Daniel in a very real way, maybe not in the history books, as Darius and his army comes and takes over. And we find out in the next chapter, Darius finds Daniel pleasant and likes him quite a bit, immediately. He didn't lose anything. And he was, in a real way, the last king of Babylon because he was third in line to the throne. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He was the final king. 
And that's what's meant to be the juxtaposition. He ended the Babylonian Empire as king. But Belshazzar ended it dead. God is judge. (laughs) And God's judgment will have its day. The writing is on the wall about justice looming and justice having its day. And we cannot overrule it. Final thing I want to share. Writing is on the wall about the condition of the human heart, human beings. In this text, almost right off the bat, after throwing this party, he gets a little wine in his system, they get a little bit of wine in their system, hey, we got a great idea. That's almost never a good sign, right? Drinking a little bit, I got a great idea. And so they go and they get those artifacts, those tools out of, that were used for the Jewish worship. And he goes and gets the goblets and whatnot, brings them out, puts his wine in them, starts drinking. Not just drinking, but also while he's drinking, singing praises to the God of gold, the God of silver, the God of bronze, the God of wood, the God of straw, you know, just whatever they could think of. What they have done in that moment are two things that really set apart the human heart from Genesis 3 onward. What rebellion did to us? He blasphemed, and he became an idolater. See, blasphemy is taking what is holy and making it common, or treating it as common. Idolatry is taking what is common and making it holy. And not only does Belshazzar do this, I do this, you do this, we do this. This is the condition of the human heart from Genesis 3 onward. We are a people that blaspheme and worship idols. And were it not for Jesus, I would have no hope but to do that constantly the rest of my days. Even with Christ, I will not walk in the Spirit many times in my life, and I will enter what is effectively blasphemy, treating what is holy as common, and treating what is common, what is holy, being an idolater. Think about the responses from Belshazzar. Uh, We could call them even tactics, the way he responded. Um, one was a little bit more knee-jerkish, and that was his knees buckling, soiling his pants, face turning pale. But what does he do in response to that? You know, he, he, he does his best coping game. <laughs> this is what we do, too. He coped. But, but, but what he did in, in, is really fascinating. He coped in a fascinating way. Belshazzar, he actually turned to his faith. Did you notice that? He turned to his faith. We may not call it like a true faith at all, but it was his faith. He turned to his enchanters, his Chaldeans, his riddle solvers. He turned to them for the answers. And he actually, because we know he eventually turned pale again, just turning to them gave him comfort and got, his, got him to get his stuff together again. What do we go to to get our stuff together again? What do we go to? See, here's interesting. He went to his faith. 
You know, the most disturbing trend I have seen amongst followers of Jesus in this period of time we're living in is that they're not going to their faith. They're going to the flesh. They're going to their feeds. They're going to their news sources. They're going to their their echo chambers. They're going to wherever they can actually feel good and justify themselves and feel justified seeking justification he's seeking justification this handwriting i feel it judgment i need something to make me feel better about how things are going to go i need to feel better about me and what i just did (laughs) so i need you guys to interpret this they can't friends we serve the lord no matter what the cultural moment or situation so um Most of the time, people catch things more than they're taught things. You know, there's more caught than there is taught. I fear that a lot of people are catching us going to the flesh and not to our faith. Um, And they're picking up on that. And you wonder why you're getting flesh responses in response to your flesh response. I need a vision for what it looks like for gospel people to go to their faith. Go to their faith to bring Jesus as the answer to all things. We serve the Lord no matter what cultural moment or situation in, and we need to bring serious answers and hope to those in need. And we don't have serious answers when we're going to the flesh. So let's go to our faith. Let's go to our scriptures. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Let's go to accountability. Let's go to confession and repentance with one another. The writing was on the wall about who Belshazzar was. (laughs) What you just did with that blasphemy and idolatry, which, by the way, wasn't the first time he'd done it, just like all of us. He didn't do it just once. His whole life was riddled with it. This was just, in our episode, this bright picture of it. What you just did is a reminder. Here's who you actually are. You are a man whose days are numbered. You are a man who has been weighed and measured and found wanting. And you are a man whose nation and self will be divided. That's who you are. And by the way, my wall says the same thing. Your wall says the same thing. Your days are numbered. Big time. Apart from Christ, you've been weighed and measured and found wanting. Apart from Christ, you will be divided and set apart from the goodness and beauty of the Lord forever and ever at the day of judgment. In fact, only one person would have something different on his wall. Weighed and found worthy of unnumbered days and an eternal kingdom. Person is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Here's the thing. If I trust Jesus for my justification, if I don't go to my version of my Chaldeans and sorcerers, if I go to Jesus and he 
is my justification, then he becomes that for you. In other words, his wall becomes your wall. Even though you still are an idolater sometimes, even though you still blaspheme sometimes, your wall still seems the same thing when you've trusted Christ. That you are weighed and found accepted and that you are worthy because he is worthy. So this is the Jesus. Even though he wouldn't know his name, wouldn't identify him as what we would know as the Son of God, this is though the Lord that is being showed to Belshazzar. It is the Lord that Daniel worships. It's the Lord that in this moment of crisis, this moment of adversity that we're in, that we can respond to as well. Because we'll respond, and our response will either end in thriving or getting chewed up. So let's respond today.